You know, there's good news for all of us who have ever had to deal with that underlying nagging sense of shame inside. And you know, this is a problem that's as old as the Garden of Eden. You remember God's original intent and the way that man was before the fall. The scripture says that Adam and Eve were in the garden naked and unashamed. Yet after sinning and after breaking the, the commandment that the Lord gave them to follow, which was a simple commandment, and yet they broke the most simple of commandments. They could have had all the other trees, but they had to have the one they couldn't have. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Oh, Lord. But as a result, what happened is that that next day, God came looking for them, walking through the garden in the cool of the day, as was his custom. But this time he had to say, Adam, where are you? And where was Adam? Adam was hiding. Adam was hiding because he was afraid and because he was now exposed to something that he was never previously exposed to. And that was shame. You see, hiding takes place in the darkness. Shame grows in the dark, but your freedom is in the light. You know, it's interesting, and and just uh, seeing this and turning a few logs over in my lifetime, I've learned this, that when you turn a log over, what you are doing is you are exposing to the light what was previously in the dark what was previously hidden. And most of the time, you go out in the woods or go out into the lumber yard and, and you see a log that's been sitting there for a while and you turn it over, you know what happens? The bugs go running. Isn't that the truth? What some of us need to do in our life is turn the log over and exposed to the light what has been kept in darkness for a long time because there are some bugs in the life of you and me that we just don't need to have anymore. And by exposing ourselves to the light, what happens? The bugs go running. Hallelujah. But you see, when you get into darkness, you see uh, the, the, the downward spiral of just continuing to hide in the dark and continuing to let shame have its way with you in the dark and not be open and exposed to the light. I mean, that just leads to more trouble. As a matter of fact, guilt oftentimes can be a nasty spiral in a person's life. You see, let me put it to you like this. Never allow guilt about sin to lead you into even more sin. You know that voice that you hear in your head sometimes that says, well, now, now that you've done it so far, you might as well really do it. <laughs> Anybody beside me heard that one before? Sometimes it's that one bite of something and, well, you had one bite, you might as well have the whole thing. And then in other areas too, dear Lord, help us, I ain't going there. But you see, that makes as much sense as spending more because you're in debt. But the sad thing, there's some people that work for us, the people that think that makes sense. <laughs> I'm not going there. But, but it doesn't make sense. We know that. You can't spend your way out of debt. And if you just keep on sinning, you're not going to send your way out of sin either. That's just a spiral that will go down and down and down. And the result is certainly nothing you ever want to have. So how did shame get here? We see very clearly, sin brought shame into the world. Sin brought guilt 
that guilty feeling, that shameful feeling into the world. Because we're not just dealing with sin itself, but we're dealing with the shame and the guilt that's a result of the sin. Do you know what I'm saying? It's that nagging underlying thing that can often tell you you're not good enough. It's that nagging underlying thing that even though you could put on an air, yet underneath the surface there's still that something that's nagging you. There's still that something that says there's something not right about you. And of course the accuser of the brethren gets very well involved in that. As Revelation 12 verse 10 says that the accuser of our brethren accuses the brethren day and night before God. And so, you know, he's certainly not out to acquit you. The Greek word for accuser is literally plaintiff. So he's out to bring accusation against you. So how can you win the case? Because you're quick to accuse you. The enemy is quick to accuse you. Is there anybody who will defend you? Let me tell you this. First John chapter 2 verse 1 says, Beloved, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So you might think that you're accusing you because a lot of times we're the worst ones on ourselves. Yeah, the devil has a bat and he's beating you, but he doesn't even have to beat you if you take the bat and start beating yourself. Isn't that the truth? And hey, have we all been there? including yours truly. But when we go into the courtroom of heaven, the good thing is that it's fixed. Let me tell you how it's fixed. Because the judge is your father and the defense attorney is your elder brother. Hallelujah, somebody. It's fixed, and it's fixed in your favor. And let me tell you one thing further, is that any of the evidence that the prosecutor thought he had has been washed away and wiped away and doesn't exist anymore. So he can't even prove it because the evidence got destroyed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So when we talk about shame, how does shame get in your life? You know, it's the result of several things. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against ourselves. We've sinned against others. Or in many cases, somebody sinned against us. How many people for years have been walking around with shame. Not because of something that they did, but because of something that somebody else did to them and against them. And yet, whatever the source of your shame is, whether it's something that you did or something that was done to you, the cure is the same. And I want to look at some of God's promises to those who have had shame in their life. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And first place I want you to go It's to chapter 54, Isaiah 54. Glory be to God. 
You know, what's interesting is not just the fact that, that I, I know personally what battling shame is like because I'm a human being just like everybody else. And being in the ministry and dealing with people for just about 20 years has further shown me what an issue it is in people's life. But also the fact that the Bible says so much about it is also a clear indicator that there's some treasure in the word to be brought out on the subject. And I'll tell you today, you don't have to be bound anymore in a prison of shame. Glory to God. Look at what the Holy Bible says, Isaiah 54. We're going to start reading with verse 1. Single barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And I'll tell you, that's an amazing verse in there where it says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth. While you're in Isaiah, go to chapter 61. We're going to hang out in Isaiah for, for a little while today because there's such goodies along this line written by this prophet. Isaiah 61 and verse 7 says this. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Well, you've got a God here who's making promises. Promises that you won't be ashamed, you won't be disgraced, and you'll forget the shame of your youth, and that for your shame you'll have double honor. But how's he going to do that? What provision is he going to make to see to it that that comes to pass? Well, that's why I want to go beyond the promise of deliverance from shame to look at the price that needed to be paid to deliver you from that shame. You're still in Isaiah. Let your fingers do the walking. Go back to chapter 50. And I tell you, what a good verse we just read a few minutes ago for some folks in the house that your maker is your husband. I know my wife was a single mom who took that verse very seriously and walked in it and saw good fruit from it. And then the maker who was her husband was very, very gracious enough to share her with me of which I'm very grateful. <laughs> Hallelujah. Do you see 
that God wants to be everything you need to you? That he doesn't want anything left out of your life? Anything you need him to be, he can be. He's everything you need. He's a doctor to the sick. He's a helper to the helpless. He's a comforter to those needing comfort. He described himself as I am that I am. I mean, you know what that means in the Pastor Ray translation? That means fill in the blank. Whatever you need, whatever the need is, I've got the goods to meet it. Hallelujah. Isaiah 50, let's look at the price paid for our shame. And, and look at the wording here, because the prophet's prophesying this as though it was Jesus speaking in the first person. Listen, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The price paid for your shame. Very obviously paid on the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep that face concept in mind because we're going to go somewhere with that in a few minutes. But you see here part of that price that was paid for our shame. And that he bore shame. On our behalf. We know Isaiah 53 is one of the most beautiful and descriptive pictures of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah 53 in verse 3, we read this, that he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So we see that the scripture says that he gave his back to those who struck him, his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. He did not hide his face or withhold his face from the shame and the spitting of those who spat in his face. He's despised and rejected of men. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Isaiah 53 also says, and the New American Standard Bible brings it out in verse 10, that he was our guilt offering. He was our guilt offering. Jesus, later, you can write down the references, Luke 18, 31 through 33, but he's talking to his disciples about what's going to happen to him. And it sounds very familiar. He says that the son of man will be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spat on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. But on the third day, he would rise again. Oh, Lordy. Go to Hebrews 13 real quick. No, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. And I want you to see something along this line here as we're seeing Jesus being the one who bore the price for our shame. Shame was laid on him. He was shamed. And he did not withhold his face or hide his face from the shame and from the spitting. He did not hide. He accepted that shame. That's what we're going to see here. Hebrews 12, 2. I'm going to read this out of the, the New Century Version, so it may read a little differently from, from what you have there. It says, let us look only to Jesus. Verse 2. Let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and who makes it perfect. 
He suffered death on the cross, but he accepted the shame as if it were nothing. Because of the joy that God put before him. And now he is sitting at the right side of God's throne. He accepted that shame as if it were nothing. Why? Because of the joy that God put before him. So why would Jesus take that shame as though it were nothing? Why would he gladly take it upon himself? Because there was joy set before him. And part of that joy was the day that he saw you and I having the opportunity to be shame free because of the fact that he gladly bore and accepted that shame. Are you grateful today? And now, as a result of the price that was paid, we have been given glory instead of shame. Y'all didn't hear what I said. As a result of the price being paid, which he fully paid, fully bearing and carrying our shame upon him. And now, he gives us glory instead of shame. He's our glory and the lifter up of our head. So, hey, y'all could say, I went to church today and got a facelift. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let me read to you Proverbs 3 and verse 35. It says that the wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Well, the fool is the one who rejects the Lord. The fool is the one who said in his heart, there is no God. The fool gets shame, but the wise, the one who knows they need a Savior and call out to their Savior so they can be saved. The ones who walk in wisdom, they don't inherit shame. They inherit glory. What is glory? Well, let me just elaborate on that a little bit. There's no way you can fully define the word because it's just flat too big. But we do have some insight. The Hebrew word kabod gives us a little insight. The word kabod in the Hebrew language means weightiness. Literally, weightiness. And that's familiar because there's a verse in the New Testament that carries that same thought. Talks about the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Weightiness. Splendor and honor. God's glory speaks of his very essence, his authority, his power, his sovereignty, his brightness or radiance. And in the New Testament, you see language that would uh, really uh, uh, would speak synonymously of God's glory and his spirit. And you see that in the, in the fact that in the Old Testament, you would see uh, references over and over about the glory of the Lord filling the house of the Lord. And yet, what is the house of the Lord now in the time of the New Testament? Our bodies are the temples. And what are we filled with? Who are we filled with? We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And also another interesting thing. Paul in Romans 6 says that Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father. And yet in Romans 8, he says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if he dwells in you, he'll quicken your mortal bodies. So you see the glory of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord being spoken of synonymously in the scripture. Now, how, how can you define him? Because glory is, I mean, you could call it the, the hymnness of him. It's the very essence of him. 
But I, I, I love that part that talks about uh, his brilliance, his radiance. And we're going to see that very, very uh, closely in these verses we're going to look at uh, right ahead. So we know this. His face was spat upon. His glorious face was shamed so that our shame could be turned once again into glory. He bore and took our shame away and gave us glory in its place. One word, one Greek word for shame, and there's several that are used, but one in particular has the meaning of disfigurement. Literally to disfigure or to mar the beauty or uh, appearance of something. Now, in Isaiah 52, and verse 14, and if, uh, if, if you can get there quick, that's fine. If not, just make a note of it. But there's another prophecy about the Lord Jesus here. And it says, and I'm reading the Amplified Bible because it words it in a very fascinating way. Isaiah 52, verse 14 in the Amplified Bible. It says, for many, the servant of God became an object of horror. Many were astonished at him. His face and his whole appearance were marred more than any man's and his form beyond that of the sons of men. He was shamed. He was disfigured. Man was disfigured too. Man originally created in the glory of God, created in his image, what happened to that image of glory? Because when sin and when shame entered in, disfigurement took place. You could not recognize anymore the glory that was once there because now you see something that is marred and disfigured, not recognizable as what it originally was supposed to be. Yet, Jesus came and he himself was marred and disfigured. Why? Because he needed to pay the price for the marring and the disfigurement that happened to the glorious image of God that we, mankind, once were in the very beginning. So that by carrying that and bearing that, we could once again be restored to the way God originally intended us to be. Crowned with glory and honor. Hallelujah. Oh, yes. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. So, if shame disfigured us, and God's goal is restoring us into the glory of his image. How does that happen? Go to 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to see something that I don't know about you, but it made me want to run some laps when I saw it. It made me want to act sanctified and undignified when I saw it. Let me tell you. 2 Corinthians 4. We're still talking about his face. The same face that was marred. The, the, the same face that was disfigured, shamed, and spat upon. What does the Bible say about his face now? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. It says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now this face 
that once had the beard plucked out, this face that was once disfigured and marred more than anybody else's, this face that was once spat on and shamed, now is glorious. This face, the face of Jesus, is now no longer shamed and disfigured and marred, but it is the the reflection of the glory of God The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean to you and I? Psalm 34 verse 5 says, They looked to him and they were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. Psalm 34 verse 5. You you need that because that's a piece of the puzzle here. So something happened to his face so that something could happen to your face. You know, I often tell people if if they're having an issue with their back, I said, I know somebody who had something happen to his back so your back could be well. Well, well, in, in the same spirit, I say something happened to his face so something could happen to your face. So his face, which was once shamed, is now glorious. And now when we look to his face, when we look to him, we're radiant. We're enlightened. And our faces are not ashamed. Glory be to God. Because now shame's out the the window. Shame is not in the picture anymore. Because now looking to him, That glory, that radiance, the light of his glory, the brightness of his glory. That's what Hebrews says about Jesus, that Jesus is the brightness of his glory. And that very brightness and radiance is shining on us now. And then when we look to him, we're radiant. (laughs) Because what's on his face gets on our face. And our faces aren't ashamed anymore. What used to be there is not there anymore. Because now we have really gotten into what the great exchange of redemption is. We've traded our sin for his righteousness. And we've traded in our shame for his glory. Mm. Mm. Makes me want to shout. Kick my heels up and shout. Yeah. No more shame on your face. It's now glory on your face. That was seen in Stephen. Stephen, just before he preached that magnificent message in Acts chapter 7, right at the end of Acts chapter 6, it says that his face shone like, like, like the face of an angel. You know what Paul said about Moses' face in 2 Corinthians 3? He talked about the the brilliance of his face, literally the glory of his countenance. And then Paul said, and if it was glorious under the Old Testament, under what he called in in the traditional King James Bible, the ministration of death, how much more glorious does it get in the ministration of the Spirit? So if Moses' face could glow like that and he could have such an influence of God's glory on his life, then then what about now here in the New Testament, here in this time, how much more do we have the influence of God's glory being reflected in our life? Y'all ought to be the brightest people in the neighborhood. Reflecting the glory of God. Hallelujah. Now let me tell you something about glory. This is called the circle of glory. And we'll just walk through God's plan, how man messed it up, and how God got it back. First of all, we know this, that the way God created man originally, and Psalm 8 brings this out, that, God, that man was created a little lower than the angels, literally a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than himself. 
and that God crowned him with glory and honor. That was the way God originally created man. That was God's original intent for man. What happened in the garden? You know what happened. And Romans 3 verse 23 describes it so well. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what happened in the garden? Glory was lost because of sin. He fell short of the glory of God, lost the glory, and glory lost resulted in shame. What happened? Jesus came, and Hebrews 2 verse 10 says that Jesus came to bring those sons to glory. To bring many sons to glory. So there is a plan in motion to get man back to where God originally wanted him to be, but he had fallen from. Paul talked about it as the mystery that was hidden for ages. He talked about the great mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He talked about the mystery, the the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew, because if they knew it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, yeah. Are you with me? Go to 2 Corinthians 3. Let me mention to you something that Jesus said over in John 17. John 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. They're in the upper room. He's about to to go and pay the price. And he prays this. He says this to the Father about his followers. The glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Hallelujah. Now, 2 Corinthians 3, are you there? Verse 18 says, but we are with unveiled face. Now, now remember, Moses had to have a veil on his face because when he came down from the mountain, came out of the glory of God, people couldn't look at him. They're blinded by the brightness. He literally had to have a veil on his face. But oh, let me tell you something. Now with unveiled face, we're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So right now in this time, not only are we restored to glory, but, but you ain't arrived yet. God's taking you from glory to glory, glory to glory. So that, that's your race here. You're, you're going from glory to glory, one level to another. Ultimately, to be presented, as Ephesians 5 says, to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So you see the circle of glory. God's original plan, man fell from it, sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But there was a plan in motion. Jesus came to bring again many sons to glory. He said in John chapter 17 that the glory I had with with you, Father, in the beginning, I've given that glory to them. And now we see us being restored to glory, going from glory to glory, on our way to being presented as glorious before him. Is it any wonder that the apostle Paul prayed for the church, that, that, they, would, uh, that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? Let, let, let me read it. Let me read it to you. This is what he prayed. He prayed that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened and that you would know the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Is it any wonder that Paul would pray that for the church? Because how important it was for us to get that. Because that is your ticket to being delivered from shame. To know that shame And being shamed and shameful is not the way God originally intended any of us to be. God created you to be, to have glory and honor. That you would be a reflection of him and a reflection of his glory. It's not your own. 
So don't pat yourself on the back. It's his, but you get to reflect what he's got. You get to demonstrate before the world what he's got. You get to mirror to the world what he's got. What he's got, he literally put inside of you. Glory instead of shame. Let me give you a quote. This is by Billy Brim, who actually was uh, interviewed by Shine Radio this past Thursday. And uh, I don't know if y'all got to hear it. It was a great blessing. But this is a quote from her book, The Blood and the Glory. And it tells it all. The Father of Glory sent the Lord of Glory to lift up the man who had been crowned with glory, but had fallen from glory back into the glory of his presence. Let me say it to you again. The Father of Glory sent the Lord of glory to lift up the man who had been crowned with glory but had fallen from glory back into the glory of his presence. And then she goes on to say, is it any wonder why the Bible would be called the story of the glory? And now by looking at the face that once was shamed but now is glorious, That same brightness and radiance gets on us. That same brightness and radiance of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ gets on our faces. And as Psalm 34, 5 says, that when they looked at him, they were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. As we get ready to wrap up today, let me wrap up with this thought. Keeping all these things in mind, what's the bottom line? Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with us. Ephesians 1.6 says that by the praise of the glory of his grace, he's made us accepted in the beloved. Go to Hebrews 2. I want you to see something for yourself as we're wrapping this up. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with us. Hebrews chapter 2, my Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Hebrews 2, verse 9 through 11. Here we go. It says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, we made reference to that, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you, to call you brother, to call you sister. And you know what? This is something we really need to get because we have this thinking, well, he really want to wouldn't want to be around me or have anything to do with me because of all the stuff I've done. And you know, you can be in church for years and hear the truth. And yet sometimes, because it works so well, the enemy likes to bring that kind of stuff up inside of you. You can hear about the goodness and the mercy of God over and over and over again, but the devil does not quit and he's constantly trying to, to make us the exception. Say, yeah, you, you know, that, that's, that's true, but you see, your case is a different case. The devil loves to isolate people. Tell them that their, their case is the different case, yeah. Well, yeah, you got the new birth, all right. You're born again. You got the new birth, but you see, you got new birth defects. When you were born again, you didn't quite come out right. 
Don't think the, the devil's nuts. He uses that kind of stuff on people. I know because he's used that kind of stuff on me. So I know he's used it on others. That, that attempt to isolate. That attempt to make you a, a case that is really unusual and far out. But there is no case that Calvary didn't cover. And that there's nobody out there who can't have their sins forgiven and their past gone. And not just the past, you know, here, here's the thing. It's real easy to be able to say, what, what, and, and, and you know, I, believe me, understand where I'm coming from. I was saved at a very early age, for which I thank God. And, and for many years, I hear people say, well, you know, I used to do this and used to do that, used to do this, but then I found the Lord. And I say, glory to God. But that's not what I relate to. Because all my messes have happened as a believer. Which means I can't say, well, I used to be a mess because I didn't know any better. Because let me tell you, when I was a mess in my life, I knew better. And I think that the devil would use that as an even greater weapon than your past before Christ as the dumb things you've done after Christ. But even so, what is true is true. He's not ashamed to call you brethren. Think about Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. I mean, he got involved in some bad behavior. Had a son who married this girl named Tamar. The son died. So the, the, the righteous and right thing of, of the custom of the day to do was to, to let the next son in line have Tamar for his wife. So the next son has Tamar. He dies too. And then there's a third son who should have got Tamar to be his wife because none of them had any children with, with her. And so what he did is uh, he said, well, when he gets old enough, th then, then y'all can get married. But he's of age. He's old enough and there ain't no wedding plans. So what Tamar does, Tamar goes out and says, I'm going to get this guy one way or the other. She goes out and, and dresses like one of the girls of the streets. Right on the street where he's going by. And he just, you know, Judah decided to be a John one day. And so, you know, he just <laughs> goes off the road and, and, uh, and says, well, I, I don't have my stuff with you, but I'll send it to you later. Well, well she said, well, how do I know? What, what can I have for collateral, guarantee that you'll send me the goat or whatever he was going to send? And, and he gave him his staff and his signet ring. And so he got together with her, and he had no idea what was going on. Later found out, yeah, Tamar's pregnant. Oh, she's pregnant? Well, she's not married. Bring her out. We're going to burn her. And she says, I am pregnant by the man to whom this stuff belongs to. So that's Judah. Who was it, John? <laughs> Who you, you look at that and you don't get a real warm impression about the kind of character that he had there. And yet Jesus is eternally identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. David, one who behaved badly. And the Lord doesn't condone bad behavior. The good news is that the Lord can get you beyond your bad behavior. But David, who, who, who murdered, committed adultery, yet at the same time, Jesus, the, the Messiah, is eternally affiliated with him by terminology such as he that will sit on David's throne and he who has the keys of David, who will open and no man will shut and shut and no man will open. Jesus was not ashamed to be eternally associated with Judah. Even though Judah 
at certain points in his life behaved very badly. Turn to Mark 16 and we're going to close. Turn to Mark 16. This is the last place we're going today. You know about Peter. You know about Peter being the one with the big mouth, the one who said, Lord, if everybody leaves, I'm not leaving. If everybody else betrays you and denies you and, 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 and turns their back on you, it's not going to be me. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny three times that you know me. And he said, Jesus, oh, you, just, you just don't know me as well as I know me. <laughs> and what happens The words of Jesus come true exactly. He denies Jesus three times. And to pour salt on that wound, on the third time, as the rooster crowed, he was actually within eyeshot of Jesus. And Jesus turned and looked at him at that very moment. The scripture says he wept out. He, He went out and wept bitterly. Just disgusted with himself, ashamed of himself, so remorseful that the thing he said he'd never do, he was the first one in line to do. But how does Jesus respond to that after his resurrection? Look at Mark 16. Verse 5 through 7. It says, in entering the tomb, the, the women there entered the tomb and they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said unto them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Why would this angel deliver such a message to single Peter out? Because God knew that at that very moment, Peter was feeling like the lowest of the low. And there was God's special way of communicating and saying, Peter... You're not left out. You royally messed up, but you're not written out. You're you're not disassociated. As far as I'm concerned, despite what you did, we're we're still associated. And my way of letting you know that is I'm going to single you out. You think, well, the one who behaved the best should have been singled out. But yet God knew that the one who needed to be singled out was the one who behaved the worst. The one who failed the most. Does God condone failure? No. But is there hope for you when you miserably fail? Yes. Jesus is not ashamed, even at that point, to call you his brother or his sister. And for those who have fallen, the message is clear. Look unto him and be enlightened, be radiant. Look unto him and your face will not be ashamed.